Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 621 with BJ Barhani. Anything is doable, you know. You just have to follow your dream and keep moving. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, BJ Barhani. BJ, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. So born in Ethiopia, BJ Barhani made it to the USA by way of Kenya, Uganda, Europe, Israel, and South America before settling roots in New York City. And in 2000, Barhani founded Beta, uh, Beta Israeli, sorry, Bez, <laughs> say it for me real quick. Beta Israel of North America <laughs> Culture <laughs> Foundation. Thank you. Uh, Dedicated to educating uh, about the culture and heritage of Ethiopian Jews. And in 2014, Barhani, alongside husband uh, Padmore John, opened Sion Cafe in the historic Harlem district of Sugar Hill. Five years later, the cafe continues to thrive, serving the community as a place to put differences aside and to celebrate the arts over Ethiopian and, Ethiopian and Israeli food. I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Today I got for you is in any situation, uh, follow your instincts. Ooh. Instinct. Uh, if you are you have a doubt about something, just follow that first instinct you got in your uh, that comes to you. Follow your gut. It's a gut feeling, right? right. The instincts. Mm-hmm. How has that served you? Um, it it served me well. Uh, sometimes you know uh, you. Um, First of all, f- about this place, uh, a lot of people say, oh, this place has no potential. It looks, you know, about a bit run down and so forth. But uh, and I felt something within me uh, that I said, you know what? I think it might be the place for us to open Zion Cafe. So and that how, you know, we roll from there. Just the gut feeling. And, and there's a lot of studying coming out. Our studies coming out right now about the, the power of the gut feeling. It's the low road of our brain is paying attention to all these little details and it's communicating to us. And we don't quite understand it fully yet. But we do know that it means something. So do pay attention to it. It's very powerful. For sure. Awesome. So let's bring it back to where the story starts 
for you? Where does it make sense to start sharing your story? When that, when did it start? Yeah, like where 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 should we go? Like tell us about the the come up, uh, the the story of BJ. Okay, so um, in terms of the story of Ethiopian Jews, for example, I don't know how many people know uh, the existence of Black Jews, Ethiopian Jews. Uh, black Jews have practiced Judaism in Africa for thousands of years, uh, and they were dedicated. Not many people know of the existence, but this, these are ancient people that practiced the Torah for thousands of years. And about and the 70s or so, a lot of Ethiopian Jews started leaving Ethiopia and emigrating towards uh, the land of Israel. Of course, in the beginning, uh, it wasn't easy, uh, integration to Israeli society. But gradually, a group, small group, started trickling to Israel and receiving the recognition of uh, the existence of black Jews, Ethiopian Jews, and then eventually, you know, uh, getting integrated into the mainstream of uh, Israeli society in Israel. So we should mention that you spent the first four years of your life, correct, in Ethiopia? Was it the first four years? That's correct. And then you spent the next three years getting to Israel. That's correct. So take us through that part of your life. Um, any lessons early, early on? I know you're really young, four years old, four to seven. But anything that stands out to you during this time to help form who you are today? Uh, of course, you know, anything that I went through throughout my life, it kind of molded me to be who I am. Uh, but we go back. So in Ethiopia, Ethiopian Jews lived, uh, if we even go back to history, how Ethiopian Jews arrived uh, in Ethiopia, uh, there are different theories and histories, but uh, the belief within Ethiopian Jewry is that we've been there for over uh, Three three thousand years in 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 Ethiopia. You know when there were the exiles, the ten tribes of Israel were exiled throughout the diaspora. Uh, some of them arrived in Ethiopia. Some of them arrived in in uh, Egypt, in Morocco, in Europe, and so forth. So that. Jews been scattered throughout the diaspora. So one of them are Ethiopian Jews. And it always, in the heart of the Ethiopian community, been believed that we shall return to the Holy Land, to Israel, in some point. And eventually that movement started back in the 70s and 80s when basically Ethiopian Jews left off my family, the whole village of three 300 people, decided to leave and migrate towards Sudan without the knowledge of the government, of course, they had to escape. And then from Sudan to, to wait in, in some uh, you know, area and eventually to emigrate to, to Israel. So one thing I'm kind of curious about is I, I was looking at the map at Africa because I, I saw that you went through Kenya to, uh, through Kenya to what was it? Um, help me out here. I, I know I wrote So down. we went to... To we, Uganda, right? Right. Kenya to Uganda. But th- those countries are kind of like clumped together. It's not like one next to the other, like in a straight line. So why did it take three years? What was going on? What made that so difficult to, to go? How many miles was that like? Okay. So the, the, the trip in large, it, it happened three years because. So we left Ethiopia. We walked in the desert. Oh, wow. We walked uh, from Ethiopia to Sudan. Uh, it took almost a month. Wow. Uh, and when I say walked, it was a hardship for a lot of people. You know, they didn't take a bus or anything. It, if they were lucky, they would take uh, horses or donkey and ride on them. But everything was done by foot. Mm-hmm. Was that now, to stay under the radar? 
Uh, yes, uh, to make sure the government doesn't find out. And, you know, we majority of the time we will hide throughout the day so nobody really suspects. There is a whole uh, movement of a group that trying to leave the country. Uh, and then we will hide, you know, let's say you walk, you know, for the next village. You will stop, you integrate into to the village. And, uh, and from there you will, you know, Eventually, you will have a stop in a Jewish uh, village. They will hide you. They know it's a whole operation that it's was kind of like go- an underground railroad. That's it correct, like, yeah. in a way. Yeah. So the village, the villagers will hide us, give us some water, and so forth. And then night come, we walk to the next. Uh, so you vi- couldn't, you couldn't come off as seeming uh, transient. You, you had to look like you were integrating within the community. That's like you correct. Weren't just trying to. Otherwise, you will be executed. And I was going to ask, what would have happened if they found that you were trying to leave? You, uh, execution. Execution. Oh my gosh. You, nobody was allowed to leave the that country. That must have been terrifying. Did you know this at this? You probably didn't know. A, such a young age. I didn't know much that was the issue, but what I knew of was that this was the time for us as Ethiopian Jews to leave Ethiopia and emigrate to the promised land, Jerusalem, that everybody was dreaming and hopefully to return to. So it was kind of fulfilling a prophecy. So people sacrificed, did whatever it takes in order to uh, accomplish or fulfill that dream. When I was saying, we hide in a village, keep going, it took almost a month. And the the dedication in that story of immigration is that we had pregnant women wow. that gave birth throughout that journey. So I'm just trying to tell That's you that. That's a reason to slow down. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, people did not slow down. Oh, wow. The sacrifice that the strong belief that I will do whatever it takes to arrive to the promised land, Jerusalem, and be there among my brothers and sisters and practice Judaism and uh, and free. Now I know a lot. There's a lot of like uh, maybe the words like stigma or false truth that that the. Uh, the Ethiopian Jews were poor, but you guys, this was a choice that you, you weren't poor. You were comfortable, right? You were happy. You were comfortable. It wasn't like you were being pushed out. You, this was a choice. That was by choice. Nobody pushed us out. People actually left the land and the wealth and majority of the people were farmers, had big land, cows, goats, horses, you name it. Uh, we were not suffering. We're not starving uh, or, or something of that nature. Actually, the famine, the starvation started after we left, mm. 1984 and so on. Okay. So, yeah, there is a stigma. Yeah, and one I wanted of the, to address that. Uh, yeah, we definitely will address it throughout. I wanted to address that yeah. throughout the rich history, the food that Ethiopia at large have to offer to the to the world and in terms of the cuisine art music and so forth but um, as I said li- arriving to Sudan it took us almost a month because of that mm. hardship and so forth and it at that point I just wanted to mention to you that it was a dictatorship his name was Mingisu Halemarem regardless if you're Jewish Muslim Christian you could not leave Ethiopia so we had to escape mm. and then finally we made it to Sudan, uh, you know, this is very briefly, but there is a lot of stories that went through. People got lost, some of them died, but uh, luckily in our group, nobody really died. Everybody made it safely to Sudan. And from there, you basically had to start life integrating uh, uh, in, in Sudan, build a life, find job, and so forth. And from there, we stayed almost three years. The reason we stayed there, because um, the land of... The government in Israel at that mo- uh, moment were not ready to accept their black brothers and sisters mm-hmm. to return to the Holy Land. It was a whole process. But yet, 
they send different agents and groups uh, and that how we managed to leave Sudan after almost three years and from there uh, drove on a land of with my family and a few other people through we would drove from Sudan Khartoum, the capital, uh, to Kenya and Uganda. And throughout those drives, basically, you had to bribe people on the borders. Uh, you know, we passing through different countries without a passport, without permits and, and so forth. And it was all under, you know, uh, collaboration and different uh, money, uh, money payment and all of that stuff in order to allow this particular group leave Sudan eventually arrive and and in Israel, uh, it's a whole operation behind yeah, the scenes. Logistics are really intense. Yeah, and a lot of people that lived here in the U.S. help with the logistics and the money and creating the fake passport, what have you, and all of that stuff. It's incredible story that worthwhile even you know putting as a movie or something of that nature. Yeah, so you arrive into Israel uh, as a young woman, seven, eight years old. Seven years old. Seven years old. Um, you spent the next 14 years in Israel. I know you joined the military. Take the story there and take us to that part of your, your life. Okay. So arriving in Israel uh, was quite exciting uh, for my family and everybody else within the community. It was a dream come true. Uh, you know, coming to where the country where you are free to practice Judaism and be who you are and celebrate the diversity, uh, Judaism within uh, our others, uh, other brothers and sisters. Um, integrating to Israel, you know, of course, wasn't as easy. Uh, it's uh, getting adjusted to a new language, uh, culture. Uh, we were a bit new and different to the white Israelis, so they will call us name. Yeah, there was a lot of racism going on in that time between the the new uh the ethiopian jews coming to israel was there not it, 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 there is i would say um it's out of ignorism i would say people didn't know of the existence of you know black jews so it was something foreign to them but honestly we didn't know there was white jews neither so it was <laughs> yeah. something foreign to us so it's vice yeah. versa but nevertheless uh yeah uh, it took a while uh, for Ethiopian Jews to be accepted. To acclimate into the community. Uh, right, yeah. and be part of it. Uh, racism is all over the world. It's a global. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we judge people by their, first of all, by their outside rather than knowing them or anything like it. We have to be more patient and open to accept people uh, who they are, you know, without judging, uh, you know, the way by the way they look or something of that nature. So when you were in Israel, did you start getting... Uh, more intimate with food like when did your relationship with food start well um my relationship with food always been there as a kid i will be uh, helping my mom my grandma my aunties you know from uh, peeling the garlic and cutting the onions that was my job in a way nice. uh and growing up in israel with the uh, diversity of cuisine that you know throughout the di- uh, di- di- there is a lot of diversity within the different immigration group that came to Israel, which is you have Jews from Yemen, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Russia, Poland, you name yeah. it. So every one of them contributing to that and it kind of create the different flavors and me being exposed to those on top of the different flavors, food that Ethiopian have. So that's a beautiful way to celebrate the diversity within the Jewish world at large. Uh, that was my exposure. 
Yeah, usually during like this portion of the conversation, what I'm doing is I'm diving into uh, the kitchens, the mentors, the the chefs and restaurateurs had to form them into who they are today and the lessons they're taking away. What were the key lessons during your young, uh, you know, young adult life and teenage years? Anything that you think really stuck with you to help influence who you are today? People that influenced you? Sure, uh, the influence. You know, I, uh, for high school, I went to live in a kibbutz. Uh, kibbutz a cooperative way of living uh, where everybody eat in a big dining room and everybody have almost the same thing and is equal is a cooperative way of living uh, when I spent my four years there I worked in the field working uh, milking the cows so I was exposed to the natural mm. way of eating uh, or say wholesome even community. organic yeah. community yeah. giving healthy eating and all of that stuff so that I would say uh, uh, had a big impact on me, uh, you know, working at a young age and uh, I would say appreciating the land, working the land and all of that stuff uh, brought me, I guess, led me to where I am right now. Beautiful. Uh, so at what point does it make sense for us to start talking about your transition to the, the West? Because uh, I know you did a lot of traveling. You, you served the Israeli army, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to take us there? Uh, as you know, uh, the service for every Israeli citizen is mandatory to That's serve right. there. Yep. And I was, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to serve the country. I, uh, this is a country that, um, as I said earlier, molded me to be who I am. And I wanted to contribute in any way I could. Uh, it was a great experience. Uh, and from there, great experience, I would say, interacting with soldiers uh, training, basic training and stuff like that. What about order and, st- order and structure and process? Like, because military life is a great way to, to get that that experience, that that structure, that order. Some people go and they work in franchises for a little bit, right? Or, or McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, and they learn the systems and processes. But I feel like that, that same influence happens in the, the military with, you know, waking up, making your bed, and following all these processes throughout the day. Did you, did that, like, any of that stick with you to this day? Of course. Uh, there is a order of my punctuality. How I how I do things uh, systematically uh, that definitely helped me uh, uh, to execute certain things throughout my my job as well. Uh, I would say being in an army in a in a platform in a uh, place uh, definitely guide you and help you uh, to kind of shift or have a better vision throughout life in a way. Mm. Uh, because I served in the army, I felt uh, I could go and travel by myself in South America. Mm. I didn't really have any fear. It was a whole, you know, uh, uh, excitement endeavor that I wanted to do and meeting other people, cultures. Of course, my first step was the U.S. Uh, you know, meeting and seeing so many people, different ethnic groups, different type of cuisine. And from there down to Central America and then down, it going down to um, South America, hitchhiking and going down, do, doing the whole of South America, going Machu Picchu for a whole week, doing the Inca Trail. That this, sounds amazing. This is the different things that, you know, from a young uh, young childhood, you know, living in Ethiopia, walking bare, I mean, almost bare feet, walking from Ethiopia to Israel, all of that stuff, kind of anything is doable, you know? You just have to follow your dream and keep moving. Yes, I love that. I love that. So at this point, when you get out of the military, you're 22 years old, you're traveling throughout America, any key points, any key influences that are worth hovering over before kind of talking about you coming to New York? And what your look, what your like, what your life looked like in two thousand. Um, 
basically just the ability to learn from other people and interact and uh, their experiences, their stories. Yet we might be different, but overall we're all the same when want to have a better life, enhance our spirituality and what have you. Yeah, well, I think one thing that is super important for all young people to do is get out there and experience life, travel, see different cultures, get perspective, right? Because you, all these influences, all these different perspectives are going to mold who you become. And if you you know, take on a huge debt, like right out of college, or if you go to college and acquire a huge debt and you don't really know why you're at college, but you just have to be there because it's what everybody's telling you to do. Screw all that, you know, get out there, travel, uh, find out who you are, find out what you what lights you up. Right. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. Like what were some of the, any key people during your travels that really influenced you or any cultures, uh, people, societies that really influence who you are today? Uh, I would say my grandma is a great influence. She, uh, always, uh, kind of pushed me to be who I am. Uh, and if I, if, if I said back then in Israel that I'm, I want to go join the army, even though I'm a female, I don't have to. They say, okay, go ahead, do it. Do what is good for you, what do you feel is the right thing. So, and, and the same thing with the South America trip. Yeah, I worked a little bit uh, you know, after the army to, to earn my money, went down to the southern of Israel, worked a little bit in different uh, jobs. And I said, you know what, I think I want to go and explore the world and see what, what I will find maybe from there, God knows. So you have to follow your guts, as I said first. And, you know, you don't have to follow the routine, the system in a way, you know, because uh, uh, whatever works for me might not work for the yes. other, but there is no formula, what have you. Just do what yes. feels the best, and from there you explore. You don't know what other opportunity will come out yes, of it. Yes, I love that. You, you have to know what works well for you, and systems and processes are good, but the systems and po- processes that somebody else created for them and their business might not be the right systems and processes for you and all these orders. So you have to go out there, live, experience, and then pull uh, from a little bit of this, a little bit of that experience, and, and build your own uh, process, own framework that works good for you. I love that you went there. Um, okay, so bring it to 2000. You make the choice to move to New York City. What was it about New York City that wanted you to, out of all the places that you, you traveled and you experienced, why New York City? Um, the melting pot aspect of yeah. it, the diversity kind of attracted me. There is a magnet, something here within New York. And, you know, as I said, when I first came, I said, oh, in some point in my life, I have to come back. And coming here, uh, it was a whole excitement exploring Manhattan, uh, going to different venues and all of that stuff, the, trying all the different uh, food in the village, East Village, you name it. Um, and when I first came here, I asked about Harlem. I said, so how is it, dear? Is it safe? Should I go? Some of the people, they say, mm, I don't think so. You shouldn't. <laughs> Maybe we, let's put a break right there. We'll take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll come back and you can tell us about what that experience coming to Harlem was like. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grain Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that that you love the most about Revel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. 
We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back, and you just moved into, or you were talking to people about exploring possible the idea of moving to Harlem. Take it from there. Yeah, uh, so, you know, the whole uh, stigma stereotype of Harlem was what I heard was... What was the, the stigma? The, the stigma was dangerous, uh, shooting going on, a lot of gang, all of that stuff, so it's not the safest place to be in. Uh, and from my end, I felt like, what really can happen there? Uh, you know, me as a black, being black person, and I didn't, I really wanted to feel it on my own. I didn't want to hear the different feedbacks and stuff like that. And the moment I came to Lenox Avenue, 125th, saw so many vendors, uh, colorful things going on. I said, so what does care about? And since then, I found an apartment and, uh, around that area, stayed there for, since then, I'm here. Yeah. So felt in love with the culture, history, the diversity that Harlem have to offer. And since then, I even decided to establish my business. So I love Harlem. So when you first came to the States, the first line of work you were in was something to do with diamonds? Were you buying, purchasing, and reselling diamonds? What was your, your line of work? How did you even get into that? Uh, it's a whole the Israeli <laughs> connection, I guess. Okay. You know, uh, a friend of mine who used to live here, she said, oh, they need uh, somebody to manage an office and eventually purchase diamonds and do that and maybe design some stuff. So I went there for an interview. Of course, the first thing, they're like, they were not sure who's this? Why she's coming? She's black. What's she doing here? <laughs> but and then I spoke in Hebrew. They're like, oh, she's one of us. And I got hired and worked there for almost three years. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a whole uh, completely uh, environment dealing with so much cash and bling bling and all of that <laughs> stuff, which is wonderful. Learn a little bit about diamonds and designing jewelry and so forth. But that was not my calling per se. And oh. in between doing that, I actually decided to form the nonprofit organization, the Beta Israel of North America, where I felt like everywhere I went, people asked me, oh, so you are you speaking Hebrew, how come you're black, and all of that stuff. So I always have to explain myself, how am I a Jew, and how do I sp- why I'm speaking Hebrew, and that I grew up in Israel, and all of that stuff. So um, me and a couple of friends formed a nonprofit organization and then we started outreaching to different synagogues talking about the inclusion and diversity within the Jewish world uh, talking about the history doing film festivals cultural events speaking engagement you know to expand the knowledge and I think since then uh, nobody will call you so are you Jewish is <laughs> you a Jewish nobody will question that uh, remark so from 2003 4ish to 2014 was this all you were doing was this your your livelihood built yeah this group uh, yeah being uh, I had a, a cubicle uh, accepted to be uh, we had a I forgot the name I'm blanked out but you know they do um, for non small profit organization and they they provide you with office mentorship and stuff like that and from there the 
basically the nonprofit keep growing, outreach and funding grants and, and so forth. So your your mission was to educate people about Ethiopian Jews and also I mean I'm curious, were you interested in just finding more people like you to surround yourself with other people that you could re- relate to your challenges and what it, your your culture was that part of it? Yes, that's part of it. Just kind of to create a whole network. Uh, you know, there were not many Ethiopian Israeli here, so we say, okay, we're forming this nonprofit organization. What else can we do in order to help one another? Uh, a newcomer will come and say, okay, somebody need uh, to hire somebody there so we can work there. Uh, somebody have a vacant apartment, you can go there. Okay, so kind of network, uh, community building stuff like that. Yeah, That's what it, we did. It takes a tribe, you know, it takes a tribe, a network of people to to make it in today's. So you got to know people. You got to help each other out. And you know, this is I think this is where the the conversation starts to uh, we start to lean into like the business side of things because I was looking at your story and you have a really unique story. A lot of successful people I talked to spent 10, 20 years in the, in the industry uh, networking with other restaurateurs and, and pulling together their, their professional network to uh, when they open their restaurant, they can pull people from this restaurant, they can pull people from that restaurant. They, have, they put together their team, they put together their tribe, their network, but you didn't have that same traditional come up. You didn't, you didn't work in restaurants before opening uh, your, your cafe. So I started asking myself, like, what is it that made this work? Like, what is the magic juice? And I think that it, and you can bounce, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, but it's that network. You created a community of people that were passionate about the culture, about Ethiopian food. And, and did that have to do with anything? Do you think that influenced your success? Uh, in a way, of course. I think so. Uh, you know, the whole aspect of building a grassroots organization where you want to... Uh, empower your community, inclusion and diversity uh, within a community, the white Jewish community that didn't know much, and integration and so forth. Doing that and doing a lot of uh, cultural showcases, if it's a film festival uh, and a panel discussion and so forth, that kind of created a whole uh, knowledge and understanding of who is Ethiopian Jews, who is BJ in a way. And when it come up to opening a business uh, you know, a restaurant, I said, you know, I have the knowledge of outreach and all of that stuff. And the story is quite unique. Not many people know. Yeah, dive into it. And harmonizing Ethiopian, Israeli, Mediterranean uh, uh, flavors and bringing it all together with art and music and culture in Harlem is kind of one of a kind. So people are kind of intrigued and want to try. So yes, I didn't work in a restaurant before in my life. Uh, you know, the first time I brought the idea was, oh, but you never had, people would say, why you want to go? It's a tough business. I said, it might be, but I will give it a try. So I start cooking some stuff at home and I would invite friends to try it. And they would give me good feedbacks. And from there, we basically just keep rolling let's time stamp this when did the conversation about opening your own cafe start to emerge like you, at what point along the timeline like what year was it when you started saying like let's do this so in parallel doing a bina the better Israel of north america uh, north america culture foundation uh, i would say i dedicated almost 10 years doing that uh, going to different colleges talking and all of that stuff and afterwards um i said you know the cuisine aspect and we spoke earlier about stereotypes of Ethiopian Jews being hungry, starvation not much really to contribute to diversity of the cuisine at large and I said you know what there might be something missing there and uh, I kind of 
slowly, you know, other people start doing the different film festivals and events. And I said, about, uh, I would say 2010, 2008 or so, I said, I really want to have a place where people can come and gather and eat and dive in and talk and integrate, you know, and learn about one another uh, somewhere. And it so, so happened to be, uh, you know, I live in Harlem. I kind of looked in different, uh, different places. 2008, uh, there was a venue but, you know, the financial crisis happened yeah. and nothing really went forward. And I said, OK, it didn't meant to be. And we kind of keep moving. Uh, and then again, 2012, I spoke with some of my friends. I said, mm, I think I want to open and invite some friends to eat. And this young lady calling me said, oh, I wanted to know how Ethiopian Jews celebrate Shabbat. What's so unique about Ethiopian Jews in the celebration of Shabbat? Shabbat, for example, is a sacred day for all Jews throughout the diaspora and Ethiopian Jews in particular. So they will, back home in Ethiopia, they will stop doing any labor. The seventh day is supposed to be the day of the rest, which means starting Friday, you get ready before sunset. You, you prepare everything, meal, what have you, your best dinner, your best chicken, your best fish, mm. your best uh, bread, and all of that stuff. You prepare it, welcoming the Shabbat, the queen of the, uh, of the week. And then... Um, I told her, this is how we do. We prepare a special dish called Doro Wat. It's a chicken stew with hard-boiled egg uh, with a lot of spices. And she wrote an article, I believe it was for the forward. And I said, oh, I think there is a quiet interest. And we kind of keep moving. Yeah. yeah. And one thing that comes up all the time on the show, and I hope we're not getting too far ahead of ourselves, but is the, the importance of having a unique selling proposition, something that separates you from everybody else. And at the time... 2010, how many Ethiopian restaurants were there in New York City? I, there were a few, but not. I'm not Ethiopian alone. You yeah, see? Ethiopian, Mediterranean, Israeli. Ethiopian, yeah, is, right. none. There Thank is none yet. Me. We're the only one. Yeah. So that's the unique aspect of it. Exactly. So yeah. I'm sure we'll kind of get into that as the story unrolls or unravels. But take me to the point where this, this place became available uh were you did you have your business plan put together by this time or did that come after the space was available take us through like the evolution of you putting this all together okay so uh we we had a bit me and my husband pat Majon, we had a business a business plan uh, i i knew exactly what i want to have what kind of food uh entertainment all of that stuff i had the vision already uh and we basically wanted the right venue for us so as i said we looked a few, at a few venues and 2008 didn't work out and about 2012 and so you know looked around 2013 somebody said oh there is a a venue on St. Nicholas Avenue it used to be a speakeasy uh I think that might be a good fit and when we came in uh uh, you you wouldn't believe it, it was it looked scary. Uh, it was very dark and really not kept and all of that stuff. And when I f- brought some of my friends to give me some feedback, they say, "Oh, don't go. You shouldn't invest your money and time and effort into this." Uh, so you obviously didn't listen to your friends. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but I, I listened to my guts. Yes, yes. I did. And I, I don't live that far from here. I said, it will be wonderful where we live nearby. Uh, 
to create, and I wanted something in Harlem to create something wholesome with uh, uh, vegan food, healthy food, you know, something different that nourishes your body. And, you know, the complementary aspect is the music and stuff like that. So I said, yeah, I think this might be the place because there's nothing going on here. Uh, majority of the places that we see is a lot of fried stuff, fried this and that. And uh, bringing something wholesome to the community, I think, is something that definitely will benefit the community on a long term um, and um, that's what happened I said we will go for the place uh, we basically demolish everything uh, those doors were two small windows here uh, I mean you know I'm telling you yeah. a description there's but two doors <laughs> but we're sitting outside right now there's two doors behind uh, us in the patio and the place looked very narrow the walls were going halfway. It didn't look promising, but we kind of keep breaking walls, sheet racks, and so forth. And we did it with friends and families, and, and it took us a while. So you got the, the, you got the space in 2013. You didn't open until 2014, so it took almost a year to, to transform the space. Right. Uh, uh, luckily, the landlord um, worked with us. I mean, officially, I would say it took us about... Three to four months since we uh, signed the lease. To actually opening the doors? Because they had to finalize certain things with the previous tenant, and we really couldn't do anything until almost, uh, I would say, September, maybe August of 2014. Uh, And then... Uh, luckily, the landlord gave us some time as well to uh, rebuild and do renovation and stuff like that. And uh, it was a whole experience. So building a restaurant from scratch, uh, it was really... Yeah, so like this is where I like to dive into the nitty-gritty, the things you wish you knew going into that experience that you, didn't, that you found out the hard way. Was there anything that you wish you knew? If you could go back in time and give advice to the, the, the BJ, like... Five years ago, what would you have told her? What, what heads up would you have given her? So, for example, with contractor, uh, you know, some people, maybe uh, they will say, oh, I'm doing this and this. Uh, whatever deal you're doing, have it all written down in details mm. for clarity. Did something happen with you? Or? Uh, yeah, because they will say, yeah, I'm going to do such and such. And they're going to and they're ending up, oh, okay, you, if I'm doing this, you're going to end up paying more. But whatever contract deal you're doing with somebody, have everything written in detail. What exactly they're going to do for you so we are clear there is nothing vague in between. Nothing yes, falling in between. Yeah. Absolutely. What else? Uh, other things. I would say um, overall, a bureaucracy with the city here and there it wasn't easy. It took some time. Permits and, Permits and all of that stuff. What was the hardest permit for you to get? Um, the hardest, I would say, uh, liquor license. It took a while. Uh, in the beginning, we sold uh, wine and beer. And about three months ago, we got our full liquor license. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so that's almost four years or over four years. Yeah, we just licenses. we did that in purpose. We we really wanted to keep it as wine, international win, uh, wine and beer. So after a while, people say you should have uh, more hot liquor and so forth. And uh, we did that. Um, the other uh, hard part was it. I mean, as I say, I never really worked in a commercial kitchen, so I built. I kind of ordered the shelves and the <laughs> freezer and the fridge 
gender burners. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, just from the space that I thought that will fit. Uh, I would recommend, you know, if you have the opportunity, you know, somebody with a commercial kitchen, go to their space, explore, so you can move efficiently. Yes, uh, ergonomics. And like, there, uh, there's people, the professionals that can, you know, put, like make it so you maybe take two or three steps to get the whole job done, right? And having the low boy, right, you know, right beneath you or having the you know the oven like two like one step to the right or right behind you so you're using the best making the best use of that space right yeah Uh, so me as i said did it all from my (laughs) point of view and as i said uh, but it worked fine have you made any changes over the years are you still with this the original Uh, for example in the beginning i wanted we wanted to have to bake a lot of fresh bed, uh, bread, international bread as well, on top of the Ethiopian bread. Uh, but, you know, we bought uh, uh, an oven, humongous oven, and I figured out I really cannot do baking here and cooking here. So I had to send back my uh, my oven <laughs> and configuring my kitchen. Oh, man. But it's a whole process that I yeah, learned. you got to uh, figure it out. Yes. Yeah. You, you learn it by doing it. Yes. Uh, uh, you might have a clear vision plan all of that but certain things in running a business or diving to any business you improve you get better you get a better idea as you do it you have a better understanding of what you're doing now you put a lot of emphasis on your network early on or maybe i put a lot of emphasis on your network early on were you leaning on that network that you established during the prior 10 years uh to to to, to lean on the uh jewish community of people that could help you out was that going on yeah, of course, uh, I will ask for feedbacks. But overall, bottom line thing, the decision, all of that stuff had to come uh, from me. Uh, you know, I will, I will always ask feedback. Should I do this? What do you think? Oh, somebody knew somebody that doing uh, something within the kitchen restaurant world. I will ask for their reference and feedback. So, of course, there were a lot of recommendation and, and so forth. Network did help. What was it like when you actually opened your doors on day one? Like, were you, Take us to that moment when you're in business. It was uh, exciting. We were flooded uh, <laughs> with people, and I, I even recall when we, we before we, before we open, people will pick in and see what's coming up, and yeah. you know all of that stuff. It was really exciting uh, uh, moment. Um, uh, very welcoming, and people are uh, interested and curious. What is it uh, with Ethiopian food, and how do you do that, and all that stuff? And we offer uh, organic Ethiopian coffee, all of that stuff. So it was very exciting. And in between, we had different artists, uh, friends that uh, did a lot of outreach and marketing and open mics just to uh, bring more attention and so forth. Yeah. So, take any advice for somebody who's about the open who's trying to generate buzz and to drive traffic to their restaurant what were some of the things that you think were were the best things that you did to promote your business in the early the early days uh, what we did uh, I, I recall we kind of a month or three months before we opened we created a lot of kind of graffiti artists around the cafe uh, and people were curious it created a whole buzz and uh, different bloggers came and wrote about it and uh, if you are you know organic and you showcase who you are not trying to be something else people kind of feel it and Mm. they really will come and support you it's so much easier to show up every day to a job that's an extension of who you are than it is to try to show up to 
a, a vision or a brand or something that you're trying to be, an image you're trying to project. Because you've got to put that face on every day. But when it's just an extension of who you are, that is just so relieving, so much less stress there. Uh, and so much easier. It's just, it's organic, right? Right. And it's a lot more fulfilling. And you feel connected to the people. Uh, you know, we have people who come in and I talk, spend time with all my guests. I talk to them. And, uh, you know, if they have questions, how all of that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to say behind every great restaurant is a great person, right? And and when you're an extension, if you are a great person, and that, that greatness extends into your business. So paint a picture, a picture of what it was like, uh, what you were doing, how you were interacting with your guests, how you were interacting with your employees. What does that look like? I, I treat them, um, I would say, like, not my friends in a way, but I have respect. It's not employee here, employee here. There's no hierarchy. In a way, but you know, people know their place. Mm. Uh, you you try to give them the freedom in a way to express who they are. Uh, for example, you know, different people that came through here and came and left uh, contributed a lot to the growth of uh, Zion Cafe. Uh, for example, I mean, we never really. I, had a, a, a rice dish here. But because of one of my guys, uh, he's from Nigeria, and he said, you know what? Uh, this rice, jollof rice, which is eaten throughout West Africa, will be nice with the chicken, uh, uh, sauté chicken that we do here. And we tried it, and it was one of our successful uh, dishes. So we o- I'm always open to ideas and feedbacks. It doesn't have to be only Ethiopian. We are very international. So that kind of, I think, helps. As well. So, what happens when you get when you let your people contribute and f- add to the experience? What hap- What's the result when that? The result that? is, I would say, empowering to mm. them, and they are happy to come here. I mean, I will hear feedback. You say, I can't wait to come here. I love coming here because it feels like a community and respect, mutual f- respect, and engagement with the community and so forth. So, it's overall is fulfilling. So, are you still in the kitchen to this day? Are you still? heading the kitchen are you still the chef or have you transitioned out to more of an operations role or what, what, what's your role look like today i will do both if whatever is necessary okay yeah so how did you get to, when you, during the early days were you kind of all consumed with the back of house was your husband in front of house how did you split up the labor well, we split the labor we had different people in the kitchen uh, line cooks that came we trained them and uh, with uh, you know i'll tell them how do i want this particular dish how to cook this and execution so it's a matter of really teaching him uh, teaching him the right way and eventually i do not need to be in the recreating back recreating yourself and others so yes. you, you get them to the point where they can do it and then you can transition out right uh, what else have you done to uh, I mean are you adding structure or systems and processes that to aid your chefs your cooks in the kitchen and what else are you doing uh, what else we're doing uh, we here and there we try as I said getting feedbacks and from each cook to get a different implementation of unique dish that will celebrate us in a way uh, making sure that the train is well trained uh, and I always here to assist if there is any questions or in order to execute the orders and stuff like that. Okay. Um, what does well-trained look like? Give me an example of what, what that looks like in your restaurant. Uh, well-trained is if I'm not here for a whole week, they will manage and know what is missing, what to make, and all of that stuff. So how do you get them to that, to that point where you don't have to, or maybe you are stressed out when you leave, but maybe you don't have to stress. You can go someplace for a week. You can go promote uh, Ethiopian f- and Jewish food someplace. Like, How do you get to the point where you can remove yourself from the day-to-day? 
Uh, you get to the point when you have a good front of the house people and they will give them feedback as well to the back. Uh, but I, what I do is, let's say in a week, I say, don't call me. Uh, I want you to execute all of this by yourself. Mm. And then I will come and check if everything is up to code. And this is how so I do. So you take that crutch away. You can't be there all the time for them because if you're there for them all the time, that's going to be their default. Right. You know, call BJ. She'll have the answer. But if you say, don't call me, you're forcing them to figure it out. You're forcing them to find the answer, right? That's correct. I love it. Yeah. Um, you also put a lot of emphasis on uh, the the uh, the gigs that you had, the performing artists that you had. Any advice on somebody who wants to do some type of entertainment to draw to draw people off the street, to, to bring more people in? Like, what, what advice do you have for somebody who wants to do some type of entertainment? Um. I mean, you can do an entertainment uh, in your venue, but do something that it will uh, complement your philosophy. Uh, uh, you know, something within. A lot of people go and do music just, oh, because everybody else is doing it. So uh, give me an example. Tell me what your philosophy was and so then how you complemented it. I, I will, for example, this particular venue... Uh, back in the days, and I would say the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, or 40s, it used to be a famous Jimmy's Chicken Shack. Uh, a famous club, in a way, where uh, Malcolm X, you mm. saw his image, yeah. used to work here as a waiter. That's so cool. And then working with Red Fox, the comedian. Oh, wow. And while there, uh, Charlie Parker, the great musician, listening to Art Tatum, the great pianist. Oh, man. Uh, so in this venue, I didn't know, but I... Um, celebrating you know i always wanted to do art and culture and music and the venue to complement uh, the food so i wanted something as uh, you will see our slogan is tion cafe and uh, nourish your body nourish your soul mm. so yes we're providing wholesome food healthy organic food but we wanted to nourish the soul as well with uh, beautiful music art artwork, uh, poetry, book reading, and stuff like that. So it's in within our philosophy that, you know, cooking as well is an art platform on its own. So it's a very art, it's a, it's a cultural hub in a way, artistic way too, that we're exploring throughout the food, music, and stuff like that. So when you were booking uh, artists to perform, were you trying to find people that were aligned with your brand? We are very much open okay. to art in the different forms. Uh, yeah, maj- I would say majority of our music will be jazz because this, this is what they used to play here. But any type of music uh, that will complement, it's not overwhelmingly kind of interrupting the dining uh, atmosphere, is welcome. But what we would do is as well, let's say it's a more dance style we would do it later towards the late hours on a friday or saturday night so the people who come for dinner will have nice pleasant music easy going jazz with a trio and so forth but later on it will be more as the different demographics are coming out you start servicing the different demographics that's correct demographics um what about logistics any advice for somebody logistically as far as managing all those people that are coming uh getting these signing these people up in advance like what i mean i've never had to do that before what advice do you have for organizing all that and keeping it organized it uh it could be overwhelming i almost i do a lot of stuff but uh, at this point i am i would like to delegate you have to delegate and give it to other people to help you Mm. otherwise you will be burnt out yeah absolutely yes so 
so you're into this now, uh, 2014, or sorry, from 2014, 2019, almost five years. Uh, how have you transformed? One question, I mean, the, the, the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is inspiring, empowering, and transforming the industry. So how have you transformed in this past five years? How are you better today? I would say uh, my understanding of uh, building a restaurant, operating a restaurant, is in a different level from where I started. Uh, Any day you ask me, can you help me open a business, a restaurant, or help you how to manage, I can do it easily. Mm. Um, Anything we did not talk about that you think is key to your success, key to your story, anything you can bring to the table before we wrap up and go to the speed round? Uh, I would say the overall, you know, what is Ethiopian cuisine, the history of Ethiopian cuisine, uh, the nutritional value of this ancient cuisine, I think this worthwhile exploring. Uh, I would say right now, overall is very trendy, eating Ethiopian cuisine, Ethiopian food, because it's... Uh, you have the option of being vegan, gluten-free, and so forth. It's, uh, it's very healthy. Mm. One thing I'm curious about, uh, with this community that you built around yourself before opening the restaurant, uh, does, does the restaurant serve as like a, a meeting place for this community that you've built? Uh, or is it more out, spread out than that? Am I, is it, or is it focused within Harlem and New York? Um. I would say, you know, the first couple of years, it was kind of meeting place, a gathering place. We used to do uh, quite a lot of like Shabbat dinners. So we will completely close and have uh, people who RSVP ahead of time to have a Shabbat dinner. With that means we'll have about 40, 50 people RSVPing for Shabbat dinner. And then those people will have the whole experience how we celebrate Shabbat within the Ethiopian culture. And different people will come uh, and talk about their experience being an Iranian Jew. How do they celebrate? So it was a really a great place where people could come and interact and learn of the different experiences within the Jewish diaspora. But we couldn't really keep doing that because our regulars start saying, hey, I mean, it's a Friday night. People want to come for dinner and yeah. we're closing it in a regular place. So we kind of have to let go. Slowly, we did different uh, holiday celebration and stuff like that within the Jewish holidays that unique to Ethiopian Jews. So, yeah, we do. Do you think there's been, has there been like a transition from early on? Was it mostly uh, those people that are super enthusiastic about Jewish and Ethiopian and Israeli food uh, that were your primary customers? But then as the word got out more and as like being more adventurous with like how that's kind of been a trend, people going outside of their comfort food or comfort zone to eat. Mm -hmm. um, Are you seeing there being a transition more towards just general public? Whereas maybe earlier on it was a a demographic that was coming to, to get this food. Like what was that transition like? If there was one at all. We had quite a lot of people that uh, the story, the aspect of being black, Jews, Ethiopian, they're attracted uh, to this venue, to the food, to the story. And then the overall general public as well uh, got interested. Uh, So what is it like Ethiopian, Israeli food uh, or 
in over just to come and talk who's the owner let yeah. me t- hear her story you know since the New York Times or the New Yorker wrote about yeah, us right. the overall feedback and interest people you know la- keep an article from the New Yorker or the New York Times and they come with it oh that's so cool and like oh I, I meant to come three years ago <laughs> but here I am I made it it's, it's exciting, that is exciting to see that beautiful uh, we're gonna take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to bust out a speed round so this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurants hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. All right, we're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I would say my determination. Determination. I love it. Uh, What is your biggest weakness? My weakness is to being perfectionist. How are you dealing with that? How are you overcoming that weakness? Um, I'm trying to kind of say it's impossible to be all flawless and perfect. So you have to let go. Mm. Yeah, just let it flow. Beautiful. I love it. Uh, I think that's something that uh, ties a lot of people up when trying to open their restaurant. They want everything to be just right, but you just got to start and make sure that it's a little bit better today than it was yesterday if you as long as you move in that direction you'll get to where you want it to be mm-hmm. um what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team um i'm looking for somebody that eventually will understand my vision not trying to be like me but hopefully will execute um, the ex- expectation. Mm. I, I will tell them who we are, what we're all about. And if they get excited and they w- go beyond their way in order to uh, uh, do their job, you can tell this is somebody that understand and eventually they will grow and be somebody on their own at that point. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? My biggest challenge, uh, I have to be more firm in terms of people who are not punctual. Uh, I kind of treat in a way, you know, my fa- my employees kind of family, which sometimes you have to separate, uh, you know, being on a professional level yet to m- make them understand that this is a business. You have to be here. 20 minutes before your shift uh, and and really and not 
punish, but have them understand that there might be consequences for that. Yeah, if people don't think there's any consequences, they're going to be more than more likely to show up late because they're there's no consequence. But if you have that rigidity where it matters and when people don't show up, when they're expected to show up, you have to set that standard because, I mean, that's your culture. I mean, the culture is what's happening in your restaurant. So right. if people are showing up late, then that's the new accepted culture. That's the standard that people will adopt. You have to put those bottom lines and those, those, those rigid, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, gut, I don't know, structure. Right. Um, go ahead. You know, sometimes when you build a relationship with employees that have been with you for the last three years, almost, you know, three years and a half, it's quite a while. They've almost been here from the beginning. So how do you kind of, yeah, they're great in all aspects, but how do you kind of separate the closeness that you have with them and then to come and be the firm? Hey, enough is enough. I do it with my kids. Yeah, so how are you doing? That was the next question. How are you overcoming this challenge? How are you implementing I, this structure? Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we, we do different meetings for the, with the staff. We try once a month and get different feedbacks and really point out all the different issues that are coming up and how do we improve to do better, that kind of stuff. Beautiful. I love it. Yep. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Uh. I would say honesty uh, and really uh, you have to be, I would say, integrated to the culture of who we are in a way, you know, the art, the music and all of that stuff. If you feel the connection, people will give their 100%. So that's what I teach. This is we all about family, uh, uh, providing wholesome experience to the guests and yet creating that atmosphere that we care for you. We are not only here to sell food and that's it. We are here to sell a whole experience of Ethiopian culture and food. So how do you implement that value of caring and honesty and like just realness? That That's kind of what I'm hearing from you. How do you implement that? Um, by me dem- uh, demonstrating and acting upon it uh, through my employees. Walk the walk. Yeah, uh, which, you know, uh, I do whatever... It takes, if I can, to help in any way with my workers so they feel the need as well to act upon it. I love it. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This, so this is a way you go above and beyond what's expected from the guests. Just make sure your your whatever food, whatever service you provide uh, is something that you want for yourself. So you have to make sure that if you go pay $100 for a meal, whatever, make sure it looks the best. It's something that you want for yourself. So would you like to eat this if you go and pay in that amount? So uh, that the way I uh, tell them in a, in a way, in order to make sure that they implemented the best, like they were in that situation themselves. One thing I've heard people say in the show like at least twice is pretend that your grandmother is the person you're serving, right? And use that like serve it like it's it's your grandmother's a glass meal you know make it like make it special like and, and if you have that expectation you have that standard for yourself that the same way you would want it to be done and your grandmother would want it to be done then you know that that's a good bar to set that's right i always use that be be yourself imagine somebody is serving that to you how would you serve it how do you implement it i love it what is one book to make us a better person or restaurant owner uh, yeah. I mean, the last thing, for example, I watch in Al Jazeera magazine, Al Jazeera News America, uh, you know, about 
how people you know do uh, sacrifice whatever they have if they have uh, something passion something or they are passionate about they will do whatever it takes something of that nature so we we have to walk that extra mile in order to accomplish whatever we wish for got you what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough i you know it's something i would like to improve myself is to go around uh, to different restaurants and businesses and see how they contact the business as a guest to do it more often in order to learn and improve better. I love it. Oh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted over the past five years that's had a huge influence on operations, communications, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines you can share with the listeners? I would say technology in terms of, you know, we have a software. Should I mention the name? Yeah, you can. I know. It's all about recommendations. We, uh, love recommendations. we recommend breadcrumbs, mm. for example. Uh, we use breadcrumbs. And uh, you get a report what you're spending on labor and what was the popular dish and all of that stuff. This is something that give me a breakdown. How many voids was there? Everything is there, and you can enter how many dishes of beef you have, and then when it's running low, you know, no, it kind of control every aspect of your kitchen back of the house and in front of the house. You enter the amount of the money you open with, so there is no, it's, it's a whole clear. The employees know it, and everybody know how they work. It's, so it's very efficient. Here and there, there are glitches, but I just say technology has been a great asset for us. What's your favorite feature, Bertram? Like one thing that you think has had the biggest impact from that system alone? I would say uh, getting a report every day. Uh, what, uh, which, get, how many new guests came, for example. It's, it's this a dashboard, week. right? It, it, you can get it to push to your email, if I'm correct. Yes. Uh, correct me from, yeah, so. It, it will tell you how many new customers came today and what is your overall uh, payment and all of that it's stuff. Data. It's data. It's, it basically, I mean, your, your, your business speaks to you. The numbers speak to you. What systems like Breadcrumb do is they, 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 Give your, your business a, mic, a megaphone and they can shout the numbers at you. And you can keep your thumb on the pulse of your business and what's happening. It's very powerful stuff, that data that's available to us today. For sure. So this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Sure. All right. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be that you could leave behind? Things that you know to be true. Uh, be honest to yourself, uh, compassionate, and uh, I would say be patient to listen to people's stories and, and understand them. Be honest, compassionate, and patient. I've loved this conversation today, BJ. Thank you so much. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, somebody that you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Um, let me see. Um, <laughs> I mean, I admire, I mean, he's a big shot, Gordon Ramsay. Okay, setting the uh, bar I mean, high. I like it. Yeah, I mean, in a way, he's uh, he he looked very rough in the way he talks to people, but I think overall he's a very uh, passionate, nice guy. But sometimes I myself act like it in a way, kind of to put people 
on on regiment. Yeah, somebody that I look up to in a way. Gordon Ramsay, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, why don't you let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you if we want to come try your food? Maybe you're hiring. Maybe some people out there are passionate about learning about Western African food and Israeli food and Mediterranean food. What's the best way to connect? Uh, best way to connect is like us on uh Follow us on Instagram, Tion Cafe, uh, or email us at tioncafe at gmail.com, or call us if you want to, 212 2470 at Uh, any information, any event uh, that's coming up. But another point I just want to mention, I am currently working on a book uh, to tell my journey, my story, a little bit with anecdotes of uh, different recipes and stories throughout the Ethiopian Jewish diaspora. Do you have the title of the book yet? Not quite. Is Uh, there an email list we can get on to, to be made aware when that goes live? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's on cafe at gmail.com, but this is something I'm passionate about, bringing my story, the cooking of Ethiopian Jews and so forth to, uh, to, to the larger platform. Beautiful. I've loved today's conversation. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C. C-A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.